Hello. Hi, Osha here. Uh, Russ Harris is on the show today. Yeah, he is. And here we are. You're here. I'm here. Not working? Me neither. That's okay. Andy and Rachel are working. Who's Andy and Rachel? Well, Andy is the audio producer on this show and Rachel's the show producer and I need to pay them. So to help me pay them, you might hear a commercial right now. If you do, thank you for helping me keep the lights on for Andy and Rachel. If you don't, lucky you. You're going to hear Russ Harris say something profound and then some rad music and then I'll be back. Here we go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Everything that's meaningful in life comes with the full range of emotions. You know, uh, finding a partner, raising a family, building a career, something as fundamental as just looking after your physical health. It's going to come with discomfort. So if our philosophy on life is I must avoid discomfort, uncomfortable thoughts and feelings are bad, and, and the way for me to have a good life is to reduce or avoid difficult thoughts and feelings, then that leads me to start cutting out very important areas of life. That is author and acceptance and commitment therapy trainer, Dr. Russ Harris. And this is episode 334 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg and this is episode 334 of the show with author and acceptance and commitment therapy trainer, Dr. Russ Harris. He's written eight books on acceptance and commitment therapy, including the best-selling book ever about the subject, a book called The Happiness Trap, sold over a million copies around the world. It's quite an influential book upon me, which I'll get into later. More about Russ in a moment. If you're new, welcome to the show. Thank you. We realize you have a choice in podcasts, and we are grateful that you've chosen to download this one with your precious, precious data or data, depending on, I don't know. What is this podcast? Well, look, this podcast is just 
It's designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something that you hear on this show is guaranteed so that when you go to bed tonight, you'll be going to bed going, you know what? Today was actually pretty good compared to yesterday. Yeah. And that's it. That's all I'm here to do. There are 330-something other episodes. Every I'm here twice a week. On uh, Since 2013, I've been making this show. On Mondays, I talk with a guest. On Fridays, I talk with you. And that's it. That's where I am. Who, who am I? I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm an author, a TV host, sometimes a radio host, a full-time father of two. I have one teenager and one infant. I only eat plants. I ride bikes. Uh, at the moment, indoors. I'm back on Zwift, which is super exciting. If you've never ridden Zwift, it's Z-W-I-F-T dot com. Uh, in fact, yesterday, I rode a, a race with 800 people, which was super cool. It was an Anzac Day tribute race, tribute, or memorial. And um, there was like 400 New Zealanders and 400 Australians, and we all rode together. It was great. And then for the last hour or so, Audrey jumped on the bike next to me, and, and we rode next to each other. And it was freaking awesome. Uh, yeah. It was so good to have the trainers back up. We haven't had the bike trainers up since um, Wolf was born, so it's really good to have the bike trainers back up so we can ride indoors now, which is great. What else What else is about me that you need to know before we start this? Oh, I'm, uh, I've been sober 10 years. I'm an alcoholic in active recovery. I'm also in active recovery for my mental health, which and both of those things I work on every single day. Uh, if you need me, you can email me, email at gmail.com. Thank you very much to the emails that came in through the week. Caitlin sent a cracking picture of what she's looking at while she listens, a sketchbook, and she's drawn a fairly fantastic representation of Mickey Mouse, which is a nice way to get mindful, listening to a podcast, having a bit of a draw. I do love seeing what you're doing or looking at when you're listening to this show. Louise was cutting out paper poppies for the driveway dawn service on Anzac Day, and she wrote, I've been enjoying the different lifestyle I've been living in the COVID-19 world. I've been exercising twice a day, mainly for my mental health, spending more quality time with my kids and husband, finding time to do the things around the house, which I'd normally put aside. I just adore that. And I am very much feeling that as well, uh, Louise. I love to see what you're looking at while you listen to the show. Send us your email at gmail.com. You can tag me on Instagram. Go right ahead. Tag me in an Instagram story. Tag me in a photo. Whatever. Haley, who looks after my Instagram, will absolutely make sure I see it. She screenshots things and sends them to me. So I'll absolutely see it. But please, yeah. You can also um, jump on the uh, Facebook group. There is a Facebook group for this show. Uh, you can find the link for that at osherginsberg.com. I'm pretty happy about getting Russ Harris on the show today. I really am. Acceptance and commitment therapy techniques have been instrumental in my ongoing recovery from mental ill health. A few weeks back, as you know, I had Ryan Holiday on the show, an author I'm an extraordinarily big fan of. And um, since then, I've been diving back into the Stoics after reflecting on Ryan's work. Uh, I know he's, he's right into Stoicism. And, and since I've been speaking to Ryan, I was like, I've really got to get back onto that. And yeah, it's right. Today I was reflecting about a quote from Seneca, to wish to be well is a part of becoming well. And that really, really resonated with me when I had a look at that today, because somewhere along the way there, when I was really struggling, when I was quite ill and I was on two separate antipsychotics, an amino ketone and an SSRI, my testosterone, nothing but a ghostly whisper in my body, putting on a kilo a week because my insulin response was all messed up and still dealing with the suicidal ideation. I just got the shits with it. I had just, I just had enough. 
at one point, I think I, was, I must have been on a bike ride up to Panga Canyon from my house there in, in Venice. And um, I just thought to myself, fuck, life is too short to be on this many meds and still feel horrible all day. I'd already met Audrey and Georgia at this point, and I was just done with how awful I was feeling all the time. I wanted to be well so, so much. And that is what kind of drove me to relentlessly pursue not feeling terrible every minute of the day. At the time, it drove me to do a couple of things. I, I changed psychiatrists and it's since led me to change psychologists, something that I've done a few times. Now, bear in mind, I don't change psychologists lightly. You can't just go to a shrink, have her tell you, you know what, a lot of this has got to do with you. And if you change the way you look at things and the change the way you do things, if you really want to get this to better, that's what you're going to have to do. And then get upset because then it's on you to feel better and you never go back to see her again. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spending at least a few months working with a psych, really throwing yourself into the work that they're asking you to do, committing to doing the homework they've laid out for you, like you're on like a 10-week fitness challenge in your brain. And if you're doing everything they're asking you to do every day, and after a few months, things still aren't shifting, then and only then would I consider changing shrinks. Now, it's not their fault. Some people work better with other, some people work together better than other people. And that's totally fine. That's totally, totally fine. But when it does come to finding new psychologists or changing psychologists, I always tell people it's a little like, little like dating. All right. Just because you see them once doesn't mean you have to commit. <laughs> okay. It's like just going to see, get, get some intel on just to have a test run, just have a test drive, see how it works. Don't forget, you are the one who's hiring them. It's not the other way around. You pay them, all right? So you need to be satisfied with how the situation works. I find it really helpful if you can talk on the phone with them first, get a vibe off them before you book in. Absolutely do that. Try and get in for like a 20-minute phone call, not a five-minute, 20-minute phone call. Spend some time talking. And um, if you can't get on the phone, take that first session. Take it kind of as an audition, all right? Let them know this is the goals I have. This is the time frame. You know, say, for example, I'm on a mental health plan. I've got 10 sessions. This is what I'd like to be achieving. Can we do some sort of testing? There's some, uh, some sort of depression, anxiety testing that you can do to give you a clue as to where you are on the spectrum of, you know, hey, everything's awesome or hey, everything's always terrible. And I've done that in the past. I've done that about every three or four sessions with a, a psych just to, you know, check on how I'm going because I might not feel that a change has occurred. Um, but by doing the very same test, it couple of times you get a bit of a sense of things but just remember this is about you it's not about them there are plenty of psychologists out there and look in this time of COVID-19 I had a look on the government website you may want to check with your own doctor but in this time of COVID-19 it looks like telehealth consults with a psychologist are covered by the mental health plan until September 2020 no matter where you live no matter where you live so if you're limited by psychs in your area now might be like absolutely the time to see if you can get some time with someone else anywhere, basically. Like I said, what worked for me was wishing to not feel the way I felt every single day and being willing to do whatever it took to not feel that way again. Now, for me, that involved and continues to involve some pretty intense exposure therapy, which 
sucks. I was doing some today. But it really is the only thing that makes it better. I'm not trying to say that not everyone who's mentally unwell doesn't want to be well. However, I would ask, are you really allowing yourself to see all the places where you are responsible for your current situation and for your current state of mind? Our ego is my ego. I'll talk to myself. My ego is a very powerful thing. Does not want me to be wrong and doesn't want me to be anything but the victim, the wronged, especially when I have to face a confronting thing about myself. All right. And that is tough to, to accept because what that does, that blocks me from accessing what is actually the issue within me that is causing the, the, the problem with either somebody else or my own self. Are we absolutely positively doing everything in our power internally and externally to get well? Are we still using old patterns of behavior from our past that may not serve us? We might not even realize that. Behavior patterns that might be trapping us in loops of thinking which stop us from seeing where our part is in the place that we are stuck. What was that Benjamin Zanderline? What am I seeing that I do not realize I'm seeing that gives me... What is it? I'll hunt that quote down. <laughs> I'll get it to you uh, on Friday. But... It's it's super important. You may you may not. I know. I may not realize what it is that's, that's going on for me. What like can I just describe to you something that's happened upstairs? I get very uncomfortable when someone else is annoyed in front of me, and I want to do everything I can to try and, you know, what can I do to, to make this annoyed go away? And I can't bear to have somebody annoyed. Like, okay, it's got nothing to do with me, and I just have to be with the fact that. This person's annoyed and I can't fix it and I just have to be with it. And that's very difficult for me to do. But I, until, honestly, I swear to you, until only like about a week ago, I didn't realize that I would do that all the time. And what it would do is invalidate the other person's situation and then would not make them feel very, very good. So I've had to figure on that. That's something I have to work with like all the time, all the time. But yeah, you you got got to be prepared to have a look and, and make sure that you are looking in all the places that you really need to, to to look into. If you want a wound to heal properly, you've really got to scrub it clean and then get the dead hole in there. It stings, right? But it heals with very little scarring, doesn't it? The same goes for your brain. You have to do it. You have to be willing to scrub it out scrub out the wound, see what's in there. But like I said, look, if you've been doing it, if you've been searching deep inside and you're still stuck, perhaps some meds are needed to loosen those bolts. Perhaps a change of tactic is also needed. I came to acceptance and commitment therapy after a few conversations I've had both on this show and away from this show. But, you know, it was one of those moments like in in the course of about uh, two months, a few people mentioned it to me and... So I went exploring, and yet it does what it says on the box. It's about accepting what is and committing to action in according with our values. Why I like it is for me is it's kind of similar to the 12-step model of sobriety. 
But there's also a few very handy diffusion techniques which have helped me enormously in the past few months. I've been back on meds nearly a year. I got back on meds in July. And the combination of having the meds in there to grease up the gears so that my brain works better, as well as the, the rigorous uh, ACT practice, that's the acronym ACT, Acceptance Commitment Therapy. I, I've had huge breakthroughs in the last few months you know, since Wolfie's been born. Each one of these breakthroughs is a lot like finishing the final kilometre of a marathon that you've been running at real hard and then just putting the extra gas on to, to get that, you know, sub four or sub three, whatever it is that you can run. I've never done a sub three. I've done a sub four, but never a sub three. Um, but, you know, going as hard as I could to make sure that I could get over the line in time. And afterwards, you feel utterly stuffed. But once you've achieved it, the level up feels like a level up in a video game. And... Like I keep telling you, you know, I just had to hope that one day it would feel different. I knew it could, but I just didn't know how. But I wanted so much to feel not as bad as I did at that point. I was willing to do whatever work it took to get there. Look, I'm only sharing what I've been through in the hope that it may resonate with you, that it may inspire you to dig deeper where you can to take responsibilities for the things in your life that you can take responsibility for. And that includes subconscious automatic responses to situations that you might not realize you've been doing. And I certainly know that I've got a lot of them to go, but I've I've been able to work through a lot of them, which has really helped. Initially, I was, honestly, I was a little reluctant at first to let go of things that I felt were a fundamental part of my personality. But eventually I realized that in an arm wrestle between reacting a certain way to criticism or staying married, um, I'll take staying married every time. Those things I felt that were vital parts of me turned out and actually turned out just to be getting in the way. And you know what? I'm still me when I managed to not react that way. In fact, I might actually be closer to the me I was supposed to be when I got born, but that's just a feeling I get every now and again. Look, like I've said on this show before, good mental health is like good physical health. It doesn't happen by accident. If you only eat food from drive-thrus and you never exercise, it's pretty clear what's going to happen to your body and what health problems will occur once those things start to really get a hold of you and become chronic illnesses like uh, type 2 diabetes or, or heart disease. Similarly, if you're feeding your brain junk, spending too much time in the social media vortex, being served item after item of distinctly directly served content designed to make you and specifically you to react in a specific way in fear or anger or FOMO or worse, not taking care of your conditioned responses to things, never questioning your own role in a situation, never being willing to change how you might feel about something, never being willing to question your response and try to re-rationalize it from another perspective. If you're doing all those things, pretty soon your mental health will degrade and that may lead to a mental illness. Just like good physical health, you pay attention to every day to move your body in healthy movement patterns that challenge you just enough to stimulate muscle growth and fat loss, good nutrition to fuel your body, good sleep to recover your body, good mental health also requires attention every day. You don't accidentally end up in good physical health. You don't accidentally end up on the cover of Men's Health magazine. Trust me on that one. Similarly, you don't accidentally have good mental health. Both of those things are a deliberate, habitual practice, and they both have exceptional benefits that, you know what, one complements the other. And look, just like you might go to a gym or these days take a class online and and do a workout following along to some video, you do workouts in your brain 
But this time, the shrink is is the PT, all right? <laughs> That's the person in the lycra saying, okay, now we're going to do butt lifts or whatever they are. <laughs> the shrink is the person who goes, okay, now we're going to talk about what happened that time in high school, <laughs> what you made it mean. You get to do to go to work. Which gets me to our guest today. Dr. Russ Harris is an author and trainer in acceptance commitment therapy. Uh, he's based in Melbourne, Australia. He's written eight books, including the best ever selling book about acceptance and commitment therapy. It's called The Happiness Trap. I found this book to be incredibly helpful, and the concepts within have given me freedom from the pain of anxiety that I feel most days. I use them every day, but you know, it's up to you what you do. We are all the cumulative result of our experiences. And everything I've learned has in one way or another helped me get to where I am today. But Russ's work and the work I've done with my ACT psychologist have been transformative to me. But like I said, they can only show me the weights, all right? I'm the one that has to lift them if I want to get stronger. In this episode, Russ is going to take us through a few exercises and he has kindly given examples for me to share with you, which uh, I've put in the show notes. He's also very kindly given you a free copy of a Facing COVID ebook and a little video about that as well. I'd recommend them both. I cannot thank Russ enough for his time. You can get his many books wherever you get your books. Start with The Happiness Trap. I, I went for the illustrated version. I'll, I'll get into why later in this conversation, but it, I found it extraordinarily helpful. You can find out more about Russ at thehappinesstrap.com. Enjoy this conversation over the internet with Russ Harris. Hey, I meant to say thanks for uh, promoting my stuff. Um, you know, after your book came out, loads of people kind of mentioned it and uh, – I was actually meaning to email you anyway, so um, it's nice to be talking to you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, look, I'm I'm really grateful for it, man. Because look, honestly, I mean, and I talk about acceptance commitment therapy quite a bit, obviously, on, on my show because of it's, you know I talk a lot about the different kinds of therapy I've been through. But I was kind of at the end of my tether, to be honest. I was like, it's just not getting any better. No matter how many meds I was getting on, no matter how much work I was doing, it wasn't getting any better. And I had the fortune to speak with someone who had, un well, in tr very awful, awful, awful circumstances, this person had lost both their parents to quite a uh, brutal murder, a home invasion, brutal murder. And this person told me that they went to something called acceptance commitment therapy afterwards. And I'm like, that sounds like what I could go for because it was the most, the best parallel because it was climate anxiety that drove me yeah. bonkers, Russ. Yeah. And um, it was like, that's the closest thing I can think of to, this is so absolutely unchangeable and every day so painful. Mm. If it worked for this person, it might work for me. And um, using that and using, you know, meds and obviously everything else, it's never just one thing, obviously. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's everything exercise, the support of my wife, my workplace, everything. Yeah, I've managed to turn a bit of a corner, um, which has been pretty, <laughs> That's pretty, fantastic. pretty good. But I'm, I'm so yeah. grateful that I, I, I got a chance to talk to you because a lot of people, you know, people do ask me, people, you know, they reach out, um, especially after they've read the book or they listen to the podcast. So I'd love to kind of know, first of all, where are you in the world? <laughs> yeah, I'm in Melbourne, in Alfington, kind of nice part of Melbourne, just... Uh, Close to the Yarra River. I d I'm detecting a hint in your accent that, that says sounds like you haven't always been there. 
<laughs> from Liverpool originally. Yeah. Um, we're not recording, are we? Yeah. Oh, oh is this whole uh, thing going on? We're recording on? the All whole right. time. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm from uh, Liverpool, UK originally, um, yeah. like uh, about 27 years ago. So when I, when I go back to Liverpool, people go, where are you from? You're not from here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you end up in, uh, in our fair country of Australia? You know, I, I, w I was miserable. I'd qualified as a doctor and I was working long hours in the British uh, National Health Service and I was pretty depressed and I had no insight or self-awareness into it. And I just thought I, I've got a. it wasn't a conscious thing. I just wanted to escape from my life. And so I thought, well, all right, <laughs> where will I go? Let's go to the other side of the planet. I went to New Zealand first and uh, after two years there, they uh, said, well, we're not renewing your visa anymore. Mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, well, I don't want to go back to the UK. So came to Australia. So you'd, you'd qualified as a doctor. We're, we're hearing a lot about the NHS at the moment, obviously, because of COVID-19. Sounds like it's a pretty humongous kind of health service to be a part of. What was the day that you went, this is it, I've got to go? Well, it was probably, I think the conditions for junior doctors have improved since my time. Back then, it was, I mean, when I tell people, they just don't believe me. They, they can't get their head around the figures that I was working 100 hours a week as a junior doctor. You know, a, a long shift on call was from nine o'clock Friday morning till five o'clock Monday evening. And you might get three hours sleep in that entire period and then there's no time off you go back to work the next day so by the time I was uh, a couple of months through that first shift as a junior doctor I was like I I've got to get out of here and I just started looking for jobs on the other side of the world. Both my parents uh, weren't originally from the UK but they met in the UK as doctors working there and they we grew up hearing stories like that Actually, I think it's fair to say that either their relationship was helped by the fact that they would occasionally find a bed because they were just dating, but they would occasionally find a, <laughs> find a bed and the two of them would just have a nap uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in between yeah. in between rounds because she was an anaesthetist and he was a general physician. And so they were... Cool. Well, it's amazing, you know, like a 15-minute power nap can get you through the next, you know, six hours, but it, it's not exactly good patient care, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, and I wouldn't recommend it for driving long distances either, but if <laughs> if you're up against it, you've got yeah. to do what you can do, I, I guess, for us. You know, that's, that's pretty much it. But so you were clearly seeing that the sweater start to unravel, so to speak, and you thought, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to find something else. Yeah, well, you know, so I grew up uh, from a family of doctors and uh, everyone else seemed to love the profession. And I thought, oh, well, you know, this is going to give me what I want in life. This is going to give me, you know, uh, a good career and status and a good income and, you know, meaningful work. And uh, it didn't give me any of those things. You know, it, it gave me a title that I wasn't really comfortable with. It gave me a, a workload that I found really difficult. And that went on for several years. You know, after New Zealand, I came to Australia and moved into general practice. And, you know, as a GP, I was just getting more and more depressed without even kind of realizing it. I, I just, you know, it's shocking to me how little self-awareness I had. Um, my main method of kind of coping with depression and anxiety back then was uh, was eating chocolate. Uh, I was lucky it wasn't drugs or alcohol. But, you know, on a, on a bad day at work, I'd get through, you know, five packets of 
Tim Tams. I just keep shoveling them down my throat all day. And uh, so I weighed, uh, you know, about 30 kilograms more back then as a young man than I do today in my 50s. So I was getting overweight, miserable. And it was like, well, but this goes against the rule book. Society tells us, you know, doctor status, money, income, privilege, um, meaningful work. I should be happy, right? That's a tough moment when it doesn't all kind of add up, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it is. Well, a long drawn out moment, really. It took me. Uh, <laughs> the thing that shocks me most looking back is that it took me so long to kind of even realize that I was, you know, d depressed and anxious. You know, what happened for me, the way I got into self-help was because I, I was reading funny books to try and cheer myself up. And so and a, a huge fan of Monty Python. And so I just read anything by any of the Monty Python crew. And then I read this book by John Cleese that he'd written with his psychiatrist. And I, I didn't even, you know, I just thought it would be a humorous book, but it was actually a really profound uh, book about John Cleese's struggles with depression. And it really, I was like, oh my God, uh, you know, he's talking about me here, you know, and, and that set me off a different path. When you got to Australia, did it feel any different or was it like what happens in, I'm sober 10 years now and they have a thing called uh, in the the secret club of sober people that I'm a part of, uh, they have a thing called, a, <laughs> they call it a geographic in that all you do is you you move, but as John Kabat-Zinn would say, wherever you go, there you are, and <laughs> you still feel shit even though everything's different now. Exactly, exactly. Oh, I'm going to add that into my vocabulary as a uh, geographic. Yeah, you, you know, you run away from your problems, but they go right there with you, you know. I mean, it, it helps having good weather. <laughs> mm. But so, yeah, yeah, you know, you can't run away from yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you got to Australia, this John Cleese book that you read, did that set off a spark inside you? Yeah, well, it set off a, a, a voracious reading of self-help books, which I had always kind of poo-pooed and ridiculed, uh, I'm embarrassed to admit. <laughs> and I started to get very interested in therapy. And as I started exploring my own journey and seeing a therapist myself, my practice as a, as a doctor started to change. I started my consultations with my patients started to get a lot longer and I was spending a lot more time looking at their emotions and their stress in their lives. And I started to progressively lose interest in the physical aspects of medicine. And uh, the first model of therapy I trained in was traditional CBT, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And I found that I had a, a passion for therapy. And that was kind of much more meaningful to me than general practice, which was a kind of shock because in my family, you know, I'm the youngest of six. So I've got three brothers who are doctors and a sister who's a dentist. And when I was born, you know, they said, oh, it's a medical student, you know, and uh, uh, my, my brothers love medicine with a passion. But for me, it didn't just kind of it didn't feed me. But when I started to find therapy and looking at people's emotions and their minds, well, I found something that I was passionate about. So after a lot of pain, I got there. Cognitive behavioral therapy is often the first port of call for many people because it is fairly simple to explain in just a GP consultation. And uh, your GP can talk you through it. You know, a psychologist would probably be a better option as someone who's focused on that sort of thing. And it certainly was my first venture into, okay, this is something that's starting to shift the needle a bit. This is something that's starting to work. I'm grasping the concept of challenging 
thoughts. And that's a really, really, really big one. That's about, if you only learn one thing from this whole podcast, could I get you to talk, Russ, just a little bit about this idea of challenging the automatic thoughts that, that pop into our heads about a certain situation? Yeah, well, so traditional CBT, there's big emphasis on identifying your negative thoughts and looking for evidence to dispute them and disprove them and replace them with more positive thoughts. And that certainly does work some of the time for some people. But when we're in really stressful, difficult situations, like, you know, for example, if you're going through a grieving process, there's going to be all sorts of painful emotions there and all sorts of painful thoughts that are completely true that you can't kind of dispute or challenge or push away. And I was looking for other ways of dealing with that. How do you deal with emotions that are normal and natural and you can't change? And how do you deal with recurrent negative thoughts that are totally appropriate or realistic or just deeply entrenched patterns of thinking that you can't just simply switch off and stop? And so as I started to explore with that, you know, go down that path, that's when I then discovered acceptance and commitment therapy, which sort of stands on the shoulders of traditional CBT, if you like, but takes it in a new direction. And where did acceptance commitment therapy come from in, in, in a time frame? Was it around the same time that CBT showed up? No, it was about so CBT started in the early 70s, whereas acceptance and commitment therapy, better known as ACT, came around in the mid 80s. And uh, Stephen Hayes, the guy who created it, you know, was intrigued. By then, it was well recognized that many people, no matter how much you challenge your negative thoughts and your negative core beliefs, they don't disappear. They keep coming back again and again and again. And what was kind of was there in traditional CBT, but very much in the background and often forgotten about or skimped over was this kind of acceptance piece. You know, lots of painful emotions are completely normal and natural. If we're going to live a full human life, we're going to feel the full range of human emotions, not just the, the, the ones that feel pleasant. So how do we learn to open up and make room for the pain and discomfort of living? And so there was a lot more emphasis on that. Steve Hayes, Kelly Wilson is another one. They were, you know, they were children of the 60s. So they'd have been exposed to, you know, flower power and those Eastern ideas. But they were also hardcore behavioral scientists. And they wanted to look at the kind of science of this stuff. What's the hardcore of acceptance and mindfulness and self-compassion and living in the present moment? And so I think that's one of the reasons why acceptance and commitment therapy has been so popular because it kind of gives us these ancient Eastern practices, but with a solid science underpinning them in a way that's accessible for every man and his dog or every woman and her cat. You know, it's kind of... I have a man and I have had cats. Uh, just <laughs> my, my wife was someone who was also had dog. So we're just going to cover all bases there, right? <laughs> you just mentioned something there that did kind of lead me to want to ask you this. If suffering is a part of life, as Susan David, who has been on this show, uh, has said, wonderfully, uncomfortable feelings are the price of admission to a meaningful life. Mm -hmm. If this is the case, where along the way did we come up with this idea that life should be without pain and life should be without suffering? Well, it's a quite a recent idea. A hundred years ago, happiness was largely conceived of as doing good. 
was living by your values, living virtuously, doing good things in the world. That was the the construct for happiness. And the word happiness comes from the same ancient root as the word happening and happenstance. It was kind of fortuitous if some good feelings happened to come out of what you were doing. But in the last century, the meaning of happiness has kind of shifted from doing good to feeling good. It's all about feeling good, feeling positive, don't worry, be happy. And unfortunately, with the growth of pop psychology since the 70s, that message has just been, uh, I mean, people like that message because we all like to feel good. No one likes feeling bad. And, you know, the idea that there's just a simple way to achieve this state of happiness by thinking positively is very appealing. I mean, it sells well. You know, (laughs) what we're talking about here, opening up, embracing the inevitable pain and discomfort of life, you know, that's not a good sales pitch. And I think uh, it also goes hand in hand with capitalism and advertising and materialism. How so? Well, all of these uh, kind of movements are, are, are selling the idea, you know, that there's a, a quick fix. If you get things, if you achieve things, if you have things, if you buy our products or you earn this money or you increase your capital, life's going to be good. So it encourages you to focus on getting external things and achieving things and having things as a pathway to happiness. But what's the reality of that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast knows, you know, that when you do get something you really want, there is a brief moment of joy and satisfaction, but it really doesn't last very long. And then there's the next thing, and then there's the next thing, and the next thing, you know. So it's, you know, Nelson Mandela said, uh, I'm not sure if I'm quoting this 100%, but the gist of it is that, you know, as, as soon as you reach the top peak of one mountain, you realize there are many other mountains ahead to be climbed, you know. And so that the kind of fleeting satisfaction that we get from achieving a goal or, or getting some money or eating some yummy food or finding that thing that we want is not going to give you any kind of sense of lasting fulfillment or meaning or purpose in life. It sounds like the former definition, the hundred or so year old definition of happiness seems to me to be in alignment with what science and research has found to actually give you that lasting fulfillment and that lasting happiness. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's like, so I, I mean, ACT is a very modern model of therapy, but the, these concepts have been around for thousands of years. And the Greek philosophers and the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Christians and the Jews. And, you know, it's uh, these concepts are in, in all the world's great religions and philosophies in one form or another. But ACT is quite different. Uh, ACT, I think I said, is the short abbreviation for acceptance and commitment therapy. ACT takes a very kind of scientific stance to all of this. And uh, a big emphasis in ACT is clarifying your values, uh, your heart's deepest desires for how you want to behave as a human being, how you want to treat yourself and others and the world around you and then using those values as a compass to guide what you do and you know it's interesting as we start living by our values using our values as as a compass to guide us our actions both great and small start to become more meaningful more purposeful more fulfilling and so there's a kind of sense of fulfillment that comes from within rather than from without I'd be fascinated to know the science behind this. What, what is the reason that when we avoid uncomfortable feelings or an uncomfortable situation or an uncomfortable trigger, what is the science behind it that when we come and we're faced with it again, it's now worse? It doesn't get any better. There's a, there's a few bits and pieces to this. So, so firstly, 
you know, the, the things that make life richful and meaningful do not just come with good feelings. Everything that's meaningful in life comes with the full range of emotions, you know, uh, finding a partner, raising a family, building a career, something as fundamental as just looking after your physical health. It's going to come with discomfort. And so if our philosophy on life is I must avoid discomfort, uncomfortable thoughts and feelings are bad, and, and the way for me to have a good life is to reduce or avoid difficult thoughts and feelings – then that leads me to start cutting out very important areas of life. I start opting out of the challenging, difficult stuff in life that brings up discomfort. And so my life kind of gets smaller and smaller and I have missed opportunities and usually then takes you into a pretty dark place. Uh, what we see is across the whole range of mental health disorders, from depression to anxiety to trauma to addiction, is we see people's lives getting smaller and smaller and smaller as they're trying harder and harder to avoid discomfort. So that's one piece. The other piece is this concept called exposure. Have you spoken about this I have, uh, but not on this particular episode. This might be the first time someone's ever listened to this show. So <laughs> I've talked a lot about exposure uh, and uh, I went into great detail about the stuff I did through me getting better, but uh -huh. it might be the first time anyone's ever heard the word and it's probably better that it comes from you than me. Got you. Well, exposure is the single most powerful process in the whole of psychology in terms of changing human behavior. There's nothing else that even comes close to it. And Exposure means really putting yourself in touch with the difficult, scary, or painful stuff that normally triggers narrow, ineffective behavioral responses, the sort of stuff that makes you get rigid, closed down, shut down, or act in ineffective ways. And it's kind of organizing contact with that stuff and learning more flexible ways of responding to it. So sometimes it's exposure to your inner world of thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, and you get in touch with that stuff and you learn how to respond more flexibly and more life-enhancing or effective ways. And sometimes it's putting yourself in, in touch with stuff outside you that's difficult, people, places, situations, and activities. And again, learning more flexible ways of responding to that stuff. And the ACT model is an exposure-based model. There's massive amounts of exposure to your inner world and to your outer world and learning more flexible ways of responding. So coming back to your original question, if you're avoiding the difficult thoughts, feelings, emotions, and memories that trigger these narrow, ineffective responses in you, like, for example, excessive drinking or drugs or alcohol or social isolation or suicidality, whatever it is, if you're avoiding those thoughts and feelings, then you're not going to be able to learn more flexible, effective ways of responding to them. And if you want to recover from those kinds of disorders, you really want an approach that puts exposure at the center so you can get in touch with that difficult stuff and respond more effectively. And why does exposure work? Because I talk about this quite a bit. Every Friday I have a show and I just kind of talk about just being willing. It's like it's the same with being sober. I just have to be willing to not drink today. That's it. Sometimes not even just I just won't drink until lunchtime you know, or I drink till dinner if I'm having a particularly tough morning. It's only like that once or twice a year, but <laughs> it still shows up, you know, it's, it really does. And I would be a liar if I said it doesn't, but all I have to do is just be willing to be with how uncomfortable this is, not drink. And you know, if I get to bed without doing that, then it's, per I've done it absolutely perfectly gold star. And why does the being with the discomfort, 
why does it make it better? Well, basically, we lay down new neuronal pathways in the brain. Neuroplasticity is this idea that our brains are plastic and we can rewire them throughout our life. And the neuronal pathways, you know, for the old behaviors, there's no way to just pull those out of the brain. There's no delete button in the brain. We can't get rid of that old pathway in your brain that says, have a beer. Oh, I'm craving a beer. Oh, you know, I'm really stressed. I could do with a drink now. There's no way to remove that from your brain. But what we can do is lay down a new neuronal pathway that inhibits the old one, if you like. And if you really want, if any of your listeners want to geek out on this, this is called inhibitory learning theory. And basically, we lay this new pathway down that gets triggered by the same stimulus. So that craving for beer shows up or the stressful situation that triggers the craving for beer shows up and the old pathway gets fired, but the new one comes in and goes, hang on, I can tolerate this discomfort. I can do something different here. I don't have to drink. I can do something more effective. So basically, exposure is a very powerful way of rewiring your brain. It's very different to positive thinking. <laughs> Wait, yes, which if anyone who's tried, I know that positive thinking, it works for a little bit, but it only gets you so far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, my ex- in my experience, it only got me so far. I'm grateful that, I mean, we originally were going to have this conversation a couple of weeks back, but I'm kind of grateful that we're having it now because I'm going to imagine that there's plenty of people who are listening that have, have never gone to a, a therapist, gone to see a shrink that are suddenly finding themselves in this situation that they are totally powerless over. There is a huge amount of anxiety around, particularly if you're if you're renting. And it is such a perfect kind of almost existential, apolitical, depersonalized threat that has nothing to do with any of your past behavior. It's just this microscopic um, nanoparticle that if you happen to come in contact with you could make you very, very sick. If it doesn't make you very, very sick, it could make someone you care about or someone you never met very, very sick and could even kill them. And that's, we don't know how it's going to end. We are in absolute ambiguity for probably the first time in, in history on a global level. And I'm just wondering how might one use, let's just take, for example, I haven't got a job anymore. I don't know what the next six months looks like. And I don't know if my, even, if my industry will survive by Christmas. What does Christmas look like? I'm, I'm so underwater with so many stresses. How can these techniques, how can we work through some of the automatic thoughts that would come up and perhaps some of the other fears that people might have and how might we be able to use some of these techniques to work through this moment in time for everybody? Sure. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, no one-word answers here. No, um, no, man. Look, honestly, <laughs> if, if we do the next forty-five minutes talking about this, I think it'll be really yeah. helpful for because there's a lot of sure. people right now who will need to really need to hear what you're about to say. And I sure. think you could help you know an enormous amount of people. Go buy the book. Uh, you'll find. <laughs> well, don't worry. I'll plug the shit out of the book if I haven't been pl- I've been plugging enough already. And I, I've actually in my book, I've got a, a second edition coming out, and I've written this whole extra chapter that talks a lot about the techniques that I use that I've gotten from Happiness Trap, including giving the thoughts cartoonish names and picturing them in a cartoonish way or otherwise interrupting that short circuit to physical agony that they would otherwise yeah. otherwise cause me. So I'm wondering how, how you might be able to talk to people about this using the techniques that you, yeah. you talk about. Okay, well, so um, acceptance and commitment therapy gets its name because of the central message, accept what is out of your personal control 
and commit to action that improves your life. So accept what's out of your personal control, commit to action that improves your life. So obviously in this you know, corona crisis, there's a huge amount that's out of your personal control. So your, your, your number one step is to focus on what's in your control. You can't control, you know, what other people do or what, whether the virus mutates or what happens to the world economy. But you have massive control right now over your arms, your legs, your mouth, the things that you say and do. So let's use those to take action, focusing in what's in our control. You have much, much, much less control over your thoughts and feelings. Anxiety is completely normal and natural and expected when you're in a challenging situation with an uncertain outcome. You know, the, the only people who don't have anxiety right now are those who are in complete denial. You know, <laughs> anybody who kind of can see what is happening here is going to have anxiety. It's a normal emotion response. If people, if you've lost your job, you're going to have grief and anger. If people you know that are, are sick or dying, you're, you're going to have huge amounts of fear and sadness. I mean, uh, so there's going to be lots of painful emotions. And there's no kind of simple way to, you know, positive think that away. It's a really painful, difficult situation. And your mind is going to come up with lots and lots of negative thoughts about the difficulties and challenges that you're facing. And again, that's completely normal and natural. So how can we take the power out of that stuff? How can we learn to let these thoughts and feelings kind of flow through us without getting swept away by them? We can't magically stop them from showing up. But we don't have to let them jerk us around and pull us out of our life. Fighting with them doesn't usually help. So the term acceptance is frequently misunderstood. I often use the term opening up or making room. It's about kind of opening up and making room for these thoughts and feelings and learning how to let them flow through us. And why would we do that? So that we can focus our energy on what is in our control, on taking action, living our values, doing what's meaningful, engaging in our life. So Back in 2015, I wrote a protocol for the World Health Organization uh, to use in refugee camps in, well, so far they've used them in refugee camps in Uganda and Syria. And, you know, people in these camps, these, there's often 200,000 people living in tents in the most awful situations and struggling to get basic amenities and not knowing how long they're going to be there or whether the war in their country will ever be over. So in those horrible situations that we're just starting to get a glimpse of now with this corona crisis and the World Health Organization wanted something very practical that people could use within that traumatic setting to deal with their difficult thoughts and feelings. And they chose acceptance and commitment therapy as the most obvious approach because, of course, you know, there's going to be so much pain and suffering when you're in those circumstances. And so what I, I could do, if you want, is take your listeners through the most, the kind of basic exercise that we put all the way through that protocol. Would that be? Please do. Please, please, please do. Because this might, this is an opportunity for it to really, uh, I think, help a lot of people here, mate. Okay. Well, the exercise, um, I call it dropping anchor. It's like there's an emotional storm blowing up 
And when you drop anchor, you know, the anchor holds the boat in the harbor so it doesn't get swept out to sea. The anchor doesn't control the storm or make the storm go away. It just kind of holds the boat steady. And that's what this exercise does. It kind of it won't magically get rid of your emotional storm, all those difficult thoughts and feelings, but it will hold you steady and the storms will sooner or later pass. And Dropping anchor exercises are based on three simple instructions. You can remember with the, the formula ACE. So the A is for acknowledge your thoughts and feelings. The C is for come back into your body. And the E is for engage in what you're doing. And if you want, after we finish, I can send you some free recordings that you can share with Mate, your listeners. That'd be epic if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, please. Sure. So... ACE is something that we can do in a few seconds, but we can also turn it into a much longer exercises uh, depending on the circumstances. So if I just take you through this and I'll just assume that your viewers are doing the same. Yeah, yeah, sure. Listeners, not viewers. Um, so A means acknowledge your thoughts and feelings. And you want to do this in a non-judgmental way, just acknowledging that whatever your thoughts and feelings are, they're completely natural right now, especially the feelings of fear, anxiety, frustration, anger, sadness. You know, it's what we expect in difficult situations. So this might involve just taking a moment to notice what your thoughts are doing, notice what your mind is saying, notice how it's racing, uh, notice what's going on in your body? Is there tightness in your chest or knots in your stomach? Are there tension in your arms, your legs, your, your neck muscles and so forth? And if you can put that into a, a brief sentence inside your head, like, you know, I am noticing anxiety or here are feelings of anger or I'm noticing my mind worrying or I'm noticing sadness, you know, uh, the phrase I'm noticing or I'm having is particularly useful for this, which I can explore later. So the A is for acknowledge your thoughts and feelings or just acknowledge what's going on inside you. I'm noticing anxiety or I'm having anger. The C is for then come back into your body. You know, you can't magically control these thoughts and feelings, but you can move your body and control your actions. And that's empowering. So come back into your body, uh, have a little stretch, move your shoulders, move your neck. If you're sitting, push your feet into the floor, straighten your back, uh, take a, a slow breath, anything that kind of helps you reconnect with your body. So as you can see, because we're Skyping, I'm kind of having a stretch right now as I do this and, you know, stretching and moving your arms and legs is particularly useful. And we're not trying to distract from the thoughts and feelings. We're acknowledging that there are difficult thoughts and feelings and emotions here. And I have a body here that I can move and take action with, even while these thoughts and feelings are present. So it's to kind of wake up your body, get you awake, get you alert so that you can take action. So that's the C. Acknowledge your thoughts and feelings, come back into your body. And then the E is for engage in what you're doing. So kind of look around, notice where you are, what can you see and hear and touch and taste and smell? What activity are you doing right now? And refocus on that activity. Right now, I'm looking at you on my computer screen and I'm giving you my attention as we continue this podcast. And the idea is that you cycle through that as many times as you need to. So, you know, the quick version would go for 10 seconds, but a longer version might go for three or four minutes. 
So is it okay if I just kind of take the viewers through this? Please, kind of, absolutely. Now that Go I've for it. explained it. Okay, so uh, again, if you're listening to this, just take a moment now. Acknowledge your thoughts and feelings. What's happening in your mind? What kind of thoughts are there? What's happening in your body? Sensations, feelings? Acknowledge they're there. Acknowledge that they're completely normal and natural. Now come back into your body, straighten your back, push your feet into the floor, stretch your body in some way, move your arms and legs or your neck and just kind of, there's a body here that you have control over right now, even though you can't control your thoughts and feelings, you can move this body, move it, feel it. And there's a world around you, so look around, notice what you can see and hear, breathe in the air. And refocus your attention on what you're doing right here, right now. And so this is the basic dropping anchor practice. And I'll send you four recordings varying from 45 seconds to 11 minutes, you know. <laughs> um, you can turn it into a sort of meditation practice if you want. Cool. And then, uh, of course, the other part of this is committed action. So, you know, are you doing something meaningful right now? Are you living your values, doing something life enhancing in some way, whether that's about caring for yourself or others or other values, you know, and if not, change what you're doing, do something different. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Firstly, thank you so much for taking us through that. I always get super excited when I hear things like that because that it could be anyone's first time listening. It could be anyone's first time grasping a concept. And that's um, if you've never – obviously, my therapist had taken me through that one a few times, but I remember how powerful it was the first time she did it. And, um, yeah, I'm just really stoked that people have had a chance to do that <laughs> and learn that as a skill. There's a couple of things that's really cool about that exercise. One is – it's mindfulness, but it's not meditation. You mm. know, many people have this idea that mindfulness has to involve meditation, and it certainly doesn't. And, you know, another thing is that you can do it anytime, any place, anywhere. It's really practical. Mm. The third is it's especially useful for people who have been through trauma or who are in traumatic situations, you know, because what tends to happen is you tend to freeze up and shut down and disengage from the world around you. And what you need to do is to kind of be able to move and engage in the world around you. So it's very useful. When you were talking earlier, you mentioned and, and I I ended up actually taking it to Audrey and because uh, I sometimes I, I lean a little too hard on my wife, but I came home one day from a session with my therapist and I said, when you see me in it, 
and she knows what I mean. Like when I'm when I'm in it, when I'm this other guy that the one she probably didn't want to get married to, but the one that mm-hmm. shows up when there's anxiety or there's tension and and, and um, I have a very limited amount of emotional responses and I kind of go almost into an automaton mode and it's very weird to be around for some people, or her mainly. I asked her to say, what are you noticing as a way to help me snap out of it? Mm. You mentioned before that you would talk about it. Why do those things work? I'm noticing or I'm having. Why do those things work? So they kind of activate different parts of the brain is the most likely explanation. When these difficult emotions are present, they have a huge amount of control over us when we're not aware of them. The less conscious awareness we have of our emotions, the more our emotions push us around. And this is why so many models of therapy and mindfulness practices place great emphasis on on starting to become aware of your emotions and the prefrontal cortex, the bit of your brain right at the front before your forehead is kind of activated when you're using these kind of noticing statements. And again, you're rewiring your brain, the kind of the more turbulent emotional parts of your brain start to get a message from the more calming parts of your brain like oh okay there's an emotion here there's a feeling here you've got some choices so just noticing the emotions makes a difference but when we add a bit of language in as well i am noticing anger or i'm having a feeling of anger it seems to accentuate that process it reduces the amount of control that those emotions have over our behavior it gives us more self-control over our behavior and over our actions Um, The other thing that's useful there is it helps us to see that we're not the emotion uh, or we're not the thought. So if I'm all caught up in my thoughts, I might say things like I'm a loser or I'm completely useless, you know. But if I can say, ah, I'm noticing the thought that I'm a loser or I'm having the thought that I'm completely useless, it gives me a little space, a little distance. I can go, okay, all right, well, there's that thought showing up again. And the same with, with our emotions in everyday language, we might say, I'm anxious, which makes it sound like you are the anxiety but in this kind of way of speaking i am noticing anxiety or here's anxiety showing up helps me to see that this emotion is something passing through me it's not who i am one of the more powerful techniques that i I read about in your book that i and i mentioned it to you earlier that i found and i use it every day is this idea of almost taking those thoughts those super powerful incredibly painful thoughts, the really traumatic ones, and turning them almost into cartoon characters and imagining those thoughts. Uh, like there's my, my favorite one. He, he shows up quite a bit. Um, Captain Catastrophe. He's got the big C. <laughs> he's got the big C. He's the catastrophizing champion of the world. Like he's got the big C on his chest. He's got the big cape. And he's he's the one that puts the visions in my head of the ocean four meters higher than it is right now of the wet bulb heat waves that you know can will kill people he's the one that pictures the droughts and the and the social unrest and you know all these sorts of things and it, it can be really really awful but when he shows up ah here you are thanks captain catastrophe really appreciate your input I'm just going to get on with, you know, making this cup of tea or whatever it is that I'm I'm doing. <laughs> what, yeah. Why does kind of cartooning those thoughts work <laughs> in a way? Because I'm fascinated to why that works. Yeah, well, I guess it, it it has the same 
effect that uh, happens when you do mindfulness meditation practice. You learn to step back and see your thoughts for what they are. When we're totally caught up in our thoughts, we have no idea that basically all thoughts are constructions of words and pictures. They're, they're either sentences or pictures or mixtures of pictures and words. When we can see them for what they are, then we have much more choice about how we respond to them. So these playful, the technical name for these techniques is called diffusion techniques techniques. Uh, fusion means that we are, we are so caught up in our cognitions, they're dominating us, our thoughts are dominating our awareness and our actions in really problematic ways. And defusion is the jargon term for kind of separating from our thoughts, taking the impact and power out of them. So, de- like, okay, so it's not diffusion like a gas escaping into a chamber and being, you know, e- oh, no. <laughs> equal, not diffusion, but de- Fusion. Ah, yes. right, right, right. So that's the jargon term. But, uh, you know, in everyday language I talk about, you get hooked by your thoughts. You know, they pull you out of what you're doing. They jerk you into self-defeating patterns of behavior and you can learn to unhook from them so all of those kind of playful things so there's different variants you can try singing your thoughts to various tunes um, you can try hearing them in different people's voices like in the voice of a cartoon character or a sports commentator uh, imagining them as cartoon characters is a, is a popular one or just giving your mind a name you know I call mine Nigel so uh, when my mind's beating me up and saying oh Rush you're so useless you're such a loser uh, uh, oh, thanks, Nigel. Thanks, um, thanks for telling me that. You know, uh, and if I imagine Nigel, he's a very posh, upright Englishman, and you know, when Nigel's there, go, yeah, you're such a loser. I mean, how could you be so stupid, you bloody idiot? You know, I just can't take him seriously. He's uh, he's a Monty Python character. So, uh, and the other thing that you did there was another technique called thanking your mind, you know, so uh, no matter how mean or nasty or, or unhelpful your mind is, just with a sense of playfulness and humor, you go, ah, oh, thanks, mind. Thanks for sharing. You know, yeah, yeah, big loser. Yeah, you can do that technique that you learned on Osher's podcast, but you're still a loser. You know, thanks, mind. Thanks for sharing. And right now I'm focusing on this, you know. I've met people who, and I'm sure this is quite a popular thing, I've, I've met people who've come on this show that uh, one was a double amputee, one was a quadruple amputee, yeah. and both of them had kind of come to, this is through necessity, come to this place of, I really can't change what this is. Mm. All, all I can do is be with it and do the things that are important to me. When it comes to the C, the commitment. Why is that so important? Why is the action in accordance with your values so important? Why is that step so vital? Well, again, it's the pop psychology term is empowerment. It really means focusing on what's in your control. You know, you there is so much that's out of your control, and the more you focus on what is out of your control, whether it's climate change or coronavirus or whatever people think of you, the more disempowered you feel, the more anxious you feel. The more you focus on what's in your control, the, the more you feel a sense of agency. There's something I can do here. So the more empowered you are, I guess. You know, so the an acceptance and commitment therapy, accept what's out of your control. 
but take action uh, within your control. And as we, if you make that action values-based, then it, it, it feels meaningful. It feels purposeful. There's a sense of vitality that comes with it. So uh, values-based action is very different to action on automatic pilot where you're just going through the motions. It's very different to action where you're following expectations, doing it out of a sense of obligation or because you have to do it. It's very different to action that's motivated by avoidance. You're doing this to try to escape difficult thoughts and feelings. It's doing it because this is what's in your heart. This is the sort of person you want to be. You know, values are like your heart's deepest desires for how you want to treat yourself and others in the world around you. And you choose those values for yourself. They don't come to you from your religion or your family or your school. If if your values are to, say, be loving, kind or caring, that's a choice that comes from within. Have you ever read the book uh, Tuesdays with Murray? I know of it. I know of it. That's the bloke that would spend Tuesdays with a terminally ill cancer patient? Yeah, that's right. The author is Mitch Album, and it's a great book. It's a true story. So Murray Schwartz was wasting away from a motor neurone disease, and the author, Mitch Album, would visit him every Tuesday. And as Murray becomes more and more paralyzed he gets more in touch with his values. And, you know, while he's on his deathbed, unable to move, he's still able to live his values in little ways that give him a sense of meaning and purpose, even with this completely shut down, paralyzed body. So I find that an incredibly moving and inspiring book. Uh, there are little things that we can do. You you said you, you did some work with the WHO about people in, in refugee camps and like, bear in mind, Australians' concept of a refugee camp might be a very temporary thing that exists on the border, and then once the conflict is over, people go back. Yet there are refugee camps in this world, particularly, for example, in Jordan, where there's people that have been there for 60 years, and they never, ever, ever will ever go back to their home, nor will they be able to be absorbed into the country that the refugee camp is in because of interesting political things that have nothing to do with them. That is a heck of a thing to try and live your life under. You know, something as terrifying as climate change is is still kind of out there and we don't really know what that kind of displacement and thing is going to do to our community and our world society. Yet this complete powerlessness over where I get to live, what I can do with my day, how safe I am, because uh, refugee camps can be very dangerous places. That all happens right there in that microcosm of, of a society. If you were new to this, you'd go, yeah, but this still sucks. It's still awful. It's still horrible that I, I can't go back to my home. I lost everything. I lost all my friends and I, I can't do anything. I can't work. I can't get a visa. I can't get a passport. I just have to sit in this tent and try to deal with factional violence all around me inside this refugee camp. How can you find happiness in a, in a yeah. situation like that? Well, we didn't use the word happiness because, uh, you know, happiness is so associated in people's minds with positive feelings and positive thinking and feeling joy. Uh, what we talked is about is living your values and being the sort of person you want to be. And we used the example of role models in the refugee camp. Who do you look up to in this camp? Uh, what are their qualities? How are they treating other people around you? What are they? What are the qualities they're demonstrating? And how can you start, if you're looking up to that and admiring that in these people, how can you start living these, these values 
yourself. You know, it, you're not alone in the tent. There are other people in the tent with you. And you can be aggressive and hostile or cold and withdrawn or friendly and cooperative or kind and caring to those people in the tent. When you come out of your tent, you've got neighbors in other tents and the same deal. You can be aggressive or withdrawn or hostile or friendly or kind and cooperative. You can join in with the community prayer and singing or football or whatever the community activities are, or you can isolate yourself. And those little choices that you make all day long in the refugee camp will alter your experience. They won't magically get you out of there or make you feel happy, happy, joy, joy, but they will alter the quality of your day. And those are within your control. And I I guess it's idea that, I guess what you're getting is, you're going to have to live tomorrow anyway. All right. How can you make it not only bearable, but something that makes it a little better? How can you make it so that it's something that you don't mind doing versus another day where you wake up and go, I can't believe I'm in this shit again, because I guess it's a very clear path. If you have enough days where you wake up like that, we all are fairly all aware of what eventually can happen to somebody. Yeah. I, I guess that's it, right? It is, yeah, again and again and again. And, and when you live your values, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily doing what you want to do. You're doing what you're willing to do because it's important. You, you might not want to get out of that bed and look after your young kids, but you're willing to do it because your values are around loving and caring and kindness. And, you know, that's what you want to be about as a mother or a father in that situation. So what the research showed, so the, the, I mean, you know, the World Health Organization, they always do research on their programs. And the first big study on this was just published in The Lancet, uh, which is a very influential medical journal. And the study was done with 300 South Sudanese women in a Ugandan refugee camp. And many of those had been uh, victims of trauma, domestic violence, sexual abuse, not to mention all the trauma of warfare. And uh, what we found, this was just a, this was a 10 hour protocol. It was a kind of run in a group and uh, there were, the sessions went for two hours and there were five two hour sessions over five weeks. And in the space of that time found really significant reductions in depression, really significant reductions in post-traumatic stress disorder. People were able to much better deal with their pain and much better improve their quality of life, even though they were still in the refugee camp. And what was really interesting, uh, this didn't get reported in the research, but talking to one of the researchers where they found really interesting things like people that were from different tribes or cultures that normally were hostile and ignored each other after they'd been in the group setting together, actually started cooperating and being friendly as neighbors, you know, and stopping to chat and talk to each other, which makes a huge difference, right? Well, we're not in a refugee camp, but we are all now in this situation where we're stuck in our houses for who knows how much longer, probably quite a while. What would your words of advice be to people who are in this current situation? Like anybody listening right now, if they're you know doing the right thing, and I'm pretty sure they would be, you're in your house, you're around your family who may or may not trigger the hell out of you. Um, <laughs> more likely yes than you're no. More likely yes than no. You know, you are experiencing a vast percentage more of a recommended dose of exposure to your person that you love dearly but enough of them will make you kind of go, oh, do you really have, why are you doing it like that? That's not how you stack yeah. a dishwasher. What's going on? You know, 
That's going to happen to everybody. All right. Yeah. So what yeah. would your what would your words of advice be to people who are in you know listening in the, in this world of Corona lockdown? Well, I, I think building on what we've been talking about. So again, come back to your values. What sort of partner or parent or friend or son or daughter do I want to be in this household? When this is all over and the people I live with are, are being interviewed on Osha's podcast and Osha says to them, so, uh, you know, what was your dad like or what was your sister like or what was your partner like? What would you like them to answer? You know, you'd like to say, well, he was a complete bastard and he was always giving me a hard time. Or, oh, she was always on my back about the housework or, you know, well, they were they were understanding, they were loving, they were kind, you know, and. As you say, you know, obviously we're we're going to trigger each other in these situations. We're going to snap. We're going to lose our tempers. There, there will be conflict. But can we work on being willing to say, I'm sorry, apologize, repair, make up? Can we look for ways to bond? You know, can we look for family activities? Can we look for spending more time together at meals? Can we look for ways to bring a bit of fun and playfulness into our quarantines? Yeah, I mean, social media is just full of great ideas for this kind of stuff. Uh, like five minutes of Googling and you'll find hundreds of suggestions for things that you can do as families and partners. And you only need to take a few of these activities and bring them into your day. You know, my I've got a teenage son and he actually quite likes self-isolation. You know, he's on his computer with all his mates and they're on their computers and they've kind of got this really good they play minecraft and Fortnite for hours on end whereas you know we used to say get off that computer go outside and play and now we're saying well no you can't go outside and play stay on your computer <laughs> but you know we make sure that we pull him out of his cave to you know come down for meals we're doing little workout routines together as a family you know to keep fit we're making sure that we watch some sort of tv show together that we all like and enjoy you know uh we we walk the dog together. So we're just making sure we've got little moments of connection, bringing that in. You've mentioned a few times, and it might be the first time someone's thought about this. So how do I figure out what my values are? There's a number of different ways. Um, so one is to kind of look at your role models, whether they're people that you know or they're through movies or television. You know, what what do you admire in, in the qualities of those people? How do they behave in the world and do you see any of those qualities in yourself uh, if so how can you start using them and if not how can you start bringing them into the world another way is to again you know some version of that interview question you know if i because your values may be different in different roles let's suppose your, your role as a partner or a parent or, or or a friend and we interview one of the people that you interact with when you're in that role and we interview them on national television and we say, you know, what were his three greatest qualities? Or when you were really going through a difficult patch, how did she treat you? Uh, what were her three greatest strengths or qualities that really came out in your relationship? Um, what would the answer be to that question? And whatever the answer is, those are probably your, your core values. I mean, there's lots of other ways of doing it. Uh, my, my books are full of values exercises. Yeah. And, you know, again, if you kind of, uh, if you think about, you know, the, the last phone call question, you know, if you're, if you're dying and you've got five minutes to make a phone call to someone, what would you say in that last five minutes? You know, uh, what would you tell them? Yeah. 
usually that's going to tap into your core values. Right. Now, speaking of your books, I've got to say for me, and I guess, you know, I'm not unlike other people in the world. I learn in a, in a kind of different way. That you did an illustrated version of your book that used cartoons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was because I got the other one. I got yeah. the, the one with the words in it, and I was just – I could get that what was happening, but it was <laughs> it was when I saw Bev's extraordinary um, illustrations, I was like, of course. All right. Well, that yeah. makes perfect, perfect sense. So I've got to thank you, man. I've got to thank you for thinking of people that learn in different ways and as a different way to get the concepts. And some of these are particularly – I'm sure, they're, as you've mentioned, they're rooted in some very tricky scientific neuroplasticity stuff, but – Oh no! Here's a, a dragon pumping up a tire. Okay, that yeah, whatever it was <laughs> that was the drawing of. Yeah. You know, it was really helpful, man. And I'm I'm really grateful that you took the time to do that because that's that's the thing that really got me over the line and, and then eventually inspired me to go and find someone that could show me this face to face. So thanks for that, mate. Oh, uh, that's so good. Yeah, Bev A's but uh, an extraordinary illustrator. So that you're talking about the uh, the Happiness Trap pocketbook there. Yeah, yeah it's um, great. Well, because often when people are, aside from difficulty, you know, some people are just not great readers, but other people who normally are great readers, if they're very depressed or very anxious, find it hard to focus and read a book. So um, that was why we came up with that idea. And actually, we also did something similar in the refugee camp protocols, uh, a much more simplified version of that book. But we lots and lots of pictures and almost no writing at all to help get these concepts out there because um, some of the cultures were, were even pre-literate, didn't even have a written language, but they could appreciate the pictures. Right. Well, yeah. um, well look, mate, I'm grateful that you thought about it in such a way to get the concept across to people in different ways rather than the kind of regular, you know, what's, hang on, what's this one? I've got to, hang on, I'm just going out of focus, like the classic, like <laughs> this sucker you know, everyone's got. I'm holding up "Feeling Good" oh, yeah. um, by David Burns, and you can see it's got it's it's plenty bookmarked. This one's been around the block with me. I've had this like 20 years. This book. <laughs> but you know, it is what it's like 700 pages, and it's <laughs> that's a that's, it's a heck of a read, man. <laughs> It's a a good one, but goodness, that's hard going. Um, But so, look, I'm just grateful for it, mate. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show today, also for being accessible. I just, Audrey asked me how I tracked you down. I said, I just found his, I emailed him off his website. So, (laughs) thank you for being accessible and um, for sharing, for not only coming up. Uh, with a, a way to talk about uh, acceptance commitment therapy, but to also to be so kind and to share what you've learned with us today. It's really, really wonderful. We are in this extraordinary time in history, mate, where we as humans, we're getting a taste of what a true global challenge is, all right? And this might just be the dry run we need mm-hmm. because f- we don't get shit under control and it gets to 1.52 degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels. You know, it's it's going to make... You know, I can't get a roll of toilet paper look trivial. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, for sure. It's an opportunity for, sure. for us to grow in our resilience. It's an opportunity for us as a community to think about how we think about things. And indeed, yeah. those values that you spoke of, this idea of if I buy stuff, I'm supposed to feel happy. Why don't I? And mm. in this in this time where I'm really not buying anything except fruit and veggies, <laughs> and I feel fucking great. Yeah. Because what are my days full of? My days are yeah. full of building my studio, helping my wife with a baby, you know, saying yeah. hi to my neighbor. It's, yeah. it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> no, it, it, but I'm not alone, man. I, was, I took Wolf for a walk in the park yesterday and we, we bumped into somebody and 
this particular person, they own a, a, a restaurant and they're like, I had to fire everybody. Uh, you know, I've lost a lease. I've never been happier. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, look, it's, it's an interesting point because uh, what we're finding is really polarized reactions. So, for example, many people who suffer from depression, anxiety, and trauma are actually feeling better because they're kind of feeling much more normal. It's like all these people are now experiencing what I experience on a day-to-day -day basis. People that are, are kind of more introvert or socially anxious are actually liking that they don't have the pressure of going to work and socializing. But there's also a flip side. There are other people who are suffering. There are people who, you know, if you're on your own without a partner, uh, if you've lost your job, that kind of stuff. We're seeing also uh, one of the worst things of the isolation is the domestic violence. That's a huge issue. I mean, I don't know if you've been following this, but the kind of emergency services that deal with domestic violence uh, have had a, a decrease in phone calls, but an increase in texts and emails because all of these people are afraid to use the phone because they might be heard oh, they're locked in the house with the abuser God. so they're kind of sending text and emails uh, we're going to see a huge increase in kind of childhood trauma there's going to be uh, a lot of long-term repercussions so some of us are kind of lucky that we're in this kind of privileged way where there are some real benefits but there's others of us that are, are in pretty awful situations as well well, it's definitely an opportunity for us then as a community to think about our values and think about yeah. are we the kind of community that is okay with this sort of thing happening in our community? Because it might not be me, but my kid's going to go to school with their kid and yeah. then I'll be exposed to it through that way. So how can I make sure that everyone in my community feels as safe yeah. as I? Because that is a, a value that's important to me. And yeah. then on the other side of this, I, I really feel that we – we just might put things back together differently after this experience. Mm, I hope so. There's an opportunity, isn't there? There, there really is. is. There really is, mate. Um, thank you so much for your time, brother. And, and thank you for being so generous with offering uh, to share those recordings uh, as well. I'll definitely put that stuff in the show notes. And, um, and I can't wait for people to discover what I discovered by reading your work. And um, uh, like I said, man, like, to be able to thank you face-to-face, -face, oh. even though I'm on the Skype, um, <laughs> Because I was, well, I was really, I was, you know, I'd come off the antipsychotics, but I was kind of stuck in this holding pattern of like, this is still really shit every day. It's still awful. And I wasn't quite sure how it was going to work because I was about to bring Wolfie into the world. And that, you know, comes with this whole, you know, now I've got two kids in this, what am I doing? And don't get me wrong, man. Earlier today, I, I read about a, a forest fire in the Ukraine and it's terrifying because there shouldn't be fucking forest fires in the Ukraine, but there are. But you know, what can I do? I can go get a baby to sleep. I can come downstairs and have a Skype with you. I can make yeah. a, a conversation that people can share and listen to and, and hopefully improve their lives. And while I can't put out a fire in, in Ukraine, I can do this. And that is going to be enough for me today. Yeah, yeah. And that's really all I can do. So yeah. thank you for being a part of showing me how to do that, mate. Well, thank you. Uh, great pleasure being on the show. And uh, yeah, you make, you make the interview really fun and engaging. I can't believe that time just went like that. That's amazing. That was Russ Harris. You can find out more about him at thehappinesstrap.com. Um, and you can buy his book. It's called The Happiness Trap. 
I would recommend it very, very highly. I'm so grateful that Russ could come on the show. He did share some exercises and some and, and an ebook about facing COVID-19. Both of those things uh, are in the show notes for this episode. So if you're in a podcast app, you can pop into the show notes there and, and have a look. Thank you so much to everyone that helped me make this show today. Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my show producer, Hayley Van Spania on the socials, you for listening, Audrey for being amazing, my neighbor for working out with me, uh, my shoulder for feeling a whole lot better. I did Turkish get-ups again today. Who knew? If you've got a bit of an injury, if you if you work the injury with just the right amount of weight and challenge it, the muscles figure out how to work again. Brain does the same thing. Bananas. My brother, Ed, who went for a bike ride with me and Audrey the other day, even though we were a thousand kilometers away, the three of us all got on a bike and we rode on Zwift, which was really, really cool. And a big thank you while I'm speaking of Zwift to everyone at Zwift, uh, particularly Wes and the, and the crew at Zwift. That was a absolute ripper ride yesterday. Um, if you do like cycling at all, uh, I'm, I'm not getting paid by any of these people today. I'm just talking about stuff that I really like. Zwift is brilliant at this point in our lives. And if you do own yourself a smart trainer, you can just connect through your phone and then instantly you're riding with people from all over the world. Ed and I were on there the other day with apparently all the Chileans, which was super fun, watching them all chat with each other in Espanol. It was super duper. Okay, um, I better jet. Have a cracking week. Do what you got to do. Make it a habit. And then something that you do every day, you'd be surprised what happens. You're awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for telling other people about this show. That is the very best thing you can do for me. If you like this show please recommend it to another person. That is the best way you can repay me for making this content for you eight times a month. You're awesome. Look after yourself until I speak to you on Friday. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.